I'm Emma Harris. I'm Louisa Bengtsson. And we're broadcasting to you from Berlin, Germany. Today we're talking about Plan S, and our guest will be Professor Sabina Leonelli, who is at the University of Exeter. There is a lot of talk about um, Plan S going around now. I think I've received, uh, I don't know, five, six emails from different professional so- uh, societies, learned societies, who are mm-hmm. asking for my input, my comments on the Plan S and what do you think about it and sign here and sign there, sign there yeah. pro and contra. Yeah, sure. So sure. Um, There's a lot of buzz on social media. Yeah, yeah well. it's a lot of going on right now about the Plan S. Um Emma, do you think it's going to break the neck of the publishing industry? I've seen that claim be made, um, but, but by people who are both for and against, actually, which is quite funny. Um, I don't know. I don't know. Um, I think also there's a lot of confusion and misinformation about what Plan S actually is. So I've uh, read up on this a bit, and uh, maybe for our listeners, I can... I can uh, reiterate what I've read. So <laughs> That would be very kind. <laughs> okay, um, Plan S. So it's an initiative that basically uh, says that all research um, that comes from publicly funded sources has to be publicly available via open access publication. So okay. if you do research, you get money for it from your national or international agency, uh, you have to publish in the open access journal. Okay. First glance doesn't sound very uh, novel in a yeah, way because sure. several of uh, I know European Commission has been, been doing requested. it for ages, yeah, yeah. right? Yeah, sure. yeah, yeah, but not really. I don't know. Actually, well, I think it was like an opt-in mm-hmm. for a while, and then I think only last year or the year before it became mandatory. So it's it's not. Yeah, it's kind of been quite a soft approach so far. This is much. Yeah, this is this is really like hammer. Uh, it <laughs> yeah. has to be like this, and um, it also has to be like this because the organizations that are behind um, Plan S are quite um, important. Basically, yeah. everybody who gives you money for research is behind it. So it will it will be implemented. Yeah, and yeah the quest- it's just how it's implemented. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and the, the really sort of harsh novelty of the Plan S is that um, it's about truly open access journals. Yeah. So uh, only if you publish in a, like, really, truly open access journal, not a hybrid journal. Sabina Leonelli, she, she truly knows what Plan S is about. Yes. She, uh, so she's a professor of philosophy and history of science at the University of Exeter. Um, but she's also a member of the Open Science Policy Platform of the European Commission. She's scientific advisor to European Open Science Cloud Pilot Project. And she also served as a key expert in the mutual learning exercise in open science of the uh, Direction Générale, um, oh, Direction General, I don't know <laughs> how to pronounce it, uh, Research and Innovation of the European Commission. And most importantly, um, she was, well, she is the alumni of the Global Young Academy, but then when she was still active there, she led the Open Science Working Group. And this working group has stated, um, has um, issued a statement yes. on Plan S, yeah. being quite critical and uh, sort of cautioning to move yeah, forward. Yeah, well, I mean, I yeah. think I think offering two different scenarios of, of how Plan S could actually be rolled out and one of them as a very negative scenario and one of them very positive. Um, so, yeah, we met up with her and this is the conversation we had. Thank you.
when we talk about open science, which definition is open science for you? <laughs> yeah, I know that there's lots of controversy yeah. around this particular <laughs> point. I think the value of openness has always been very much a core part of science since, you know, research in general has started to become more professionally defined. So I don't find that to be distinctive of this moment in time when mm -hmm. open science has become a movement. I think what makes it distinctive is the fact that we are in an historical moment where because of the way in which research has been institutionalized, because of the ways in which universities and institutes and funding work, and because of the ways in which the publishing industry has developed, we've actually found it increasingly difficult as researchers to share and communicate our research as we would like. Mm -hmm. And in fact, there's a lot of pressure on people who are doing research to act in almost the opposite way, to actually keep the research closed. And so within this historical context, I think it's very important to have a platform like the Open Science Movement, where there is a strong encouragement to try and find constructive ways to have a dialogue with each other and to potentially reform the publication system and the systems we have for assessing researchers' excellence and careers so that people have more space to be able, in fact, to um, discuss, share and debate their research. So it's kind of a, I could also say maybe it's like a backlash against the capitalist way of <laughs> commercializing science in a way, or, um, I mean, so, so you, you define it more like as a reaction to the, to the push towards closeness, right? Um, yeah, I mean, and of course, you know, it, it, it's difficult to think about what the relation between open science and capitalism really is, because of course, even within the world of open science, you know, there's quite a few capitalist agents. <laughs> yeah, so, let's just say, and, and you know, and we're in a situation where, I mean, we are part of a free market economy, so mm. it's very difficult to get away from that fact. Yeah. And, you know, and there's been arguments, you know, especially in some parts of the literature, that in fact open science itself is a movement that is just a continuation of a kind of post-capitalist state. Yeah. I don't necessarily agree with this, but um, I think it is true that what we are trying to do with open science is push back against a very specific way of conceptualizing research as a commodity. Mm -hmm. And as a commodity that is owned and that needs to be sold and bought. Now, I mean, this doesn't mean that I think a lot of people who are very um, positive towards open science don't understand that, in fact, it takes money to mm -hmm. do research and to circulate research. We all know that very well. I guess uh, the idea is to try and challenge some of the ways in which we think that money attaches to research, and in particular to dissemination. Planets is a rather radical way mm -hmm. in which funders are trying to push the publishing landscape so that this situation doesn't occur, and uh, publishers get behind a much more straightforward and you know, more obvious open access model. Um, of course, this is generated huge controversy because potentially there's a lot of issues with, with introducing um, this mode of operating so swiftly in the system. At the same time, I think certainly Planets has been very successful so far, even if it hasn't really been implemented yet, in pushing the conversation on open access. So I think many researchers, many um, academic societies, and possibly most importantly, many universities who hadn't quite so far committed to devoting time, thinking and resources to how to tackle open access, are now waking up to the fact that this could be potentially you know, a, a big 
game changer in, in research. And of course, we have known that it was a game changer since a while, but you know, that message sometimes is a bit hard to come across. And of course, the big hope, I would think, in behind the planets, is that the big publishers would actually hear this message and try much harder to come up with potential solutions by which they go back to doing what really they should have been doing the whole time, which is to be a service to research rather than a very big business that in fact predates on research and mm -hmm. generates huge amounts of profits. But there has been, um, there has been some, uh, quite some resistance to Plan S also in the scientific community. Uh, I think I've read some numbers from uh, Science Europe or somewhere uh, that um, there was, um, they could sign for like either for Plan S or it was an open letter for and against and there's quite the same number so it's like 1,800 people for Plan S and 1,900 against, or something like that. Um, where does the resistance come from? Like, well, what is, what could the researchers possibly object to? Well, I think the researchers who understand the system have quite a few ways that, in fact, um, worries um, about Plan S, and they're very justified in having those. So, also as the Global Young Academy, we've released a statement where we were. Not so much saying that we're for and against, we, we find that rather meaningless as, as a way of operating, to be honest, but mostly trying to sketch um, the fact that because Plan S is at the moment still very vague in its implementation, mm -hmm. there's ways in which it could be implemented that are, could be potentially very negative for the way in which research is shaped, and in fact done of scientific excellence. So the position that we have taken is to provide two different scenarios. One would be what we regard as the ideal scenario, or anyhow, a very positive scenario, where Plan S is implemented in a way that really does help academic freedom. And the other is a scenario where, in fact, uh, Plan S is implemented in a way that we regard um, very negative and potentially having a very bad impact can on you, research. Can you be more specific about what would sure. be the negative? Um, yeah, and positive. And positive. <laughs> so, so potentially, I mean, if, you know, the problem comes when you're trying to implement Plan S very quickly, in a situation where um, publishing is you know, a very delicate affair which happens very um, differently in different disciplines and happens very differently, differently whether or not you have resources behind you as a researcher, depending on where you're based, which institutions you belong to, uh, which country you're based in. So um, our worry, I mean, we have a few worries about Plan S, but I think the major worry is that implementing it so swiftly could lead to actually a push towards, um, if you want, predatory publishing. Mm -hmm. So a situation where the easiest way to comply with Plan S for many publishers is simply to switch all of their journals to being purely open access in the sense of charging a lot of money to authors to be able to publish. Mm -hmm. So in that way, you would resolve the problem of having a wide readership or having open readership of scientific work. But our concern is that this would put a huge uh, burden, in fact, it would stop freedom to publish in scientific journals, which we think could be just as problematic, though in a different way, as not having the freedom to read scientific research. Because you would see a situation where only few researchers would actually have the money to um, publish in, in these kinds of journals. And typically, these would be researchers that work in some parts of natural sciences, which are very well funded, and in parts of the world which are very well funded. Mm -hmm. Which means that, um, for instance, uh, the humanities and social sciences, which typically are much less funded, even in the developed world, partly also because 
yeah, I'm okay, by this person too, we don't need that much money to do what we do, would lose out dramatically. Mm -hmm. Because it would be a very strong incentive for institutions to actually dump and down even more yeah. on social science and humanities work mm -hmm. because we wouldn't really be able to bring in the kind of money that would be needed to publish, like how, how we do. So, and that would affect also other parts of scholarship. So basically, you know, not to even speak about the divide between countries that are better resourced and countries that are much less resourced. So our worry is that Plan S, if it is implemented without thinking very carefully about which model of publishing it wants to support, could actually really be disastrous for the ways in which research is developing and in fact really limit the freedom to research to a considerable extent. But isn't there part, I mean, the two questions actually. So first question is, um, there has been precedence in uh, general switching to completely open access and without, as far as I know, without like raising dramatically the fees and it seems to be still be viable journals economically and people still publish there. Um, that's so. I just wonder how uh, widespread. I mean, how how substantiated the worry is basically. Is it based on some kind of past evidence? Um, and the second is, I mean, as far as I understood, the part of Plan S is also to have a capped fees. So there is actual financial uh, consideration in the Plan S as well. How much publication should cost, like across all journals? Uh, if you could comment on that. Yeah. So I'll start with the second. It's true that there is a talk about capped fees, and that's part of the reason why we got very worried. Okay. Because the numbers floating around around author processing charges are actually quite high. Okay. I mean, the research in the humanities wouldn't be able to pay even 200 euros, actually, to publish papers, because very often many of these people are not externally funded. They don't need that to do the work they do. And it would be a really big problem for them to find that kind of funding. You know, the mention of author processing charges in Plan S, which would meant to be reassuring to researchers, actually I think was one of the things that created a lot of anxiety, because many people interpreted that, and of course we're all hoping that's wrong, but they interpreted that as a sort of implicit support for the gold open access okay, right, model. Yeah. And for many people, including me, it is quite clear that this actually is not the only model that should and could be considered when implementing Plan S. So, in fact, what um, I would like to see, and the Global Academy would like to see, and many people working in this field would like to see, is a situation where you have um, authors who don't pay charges to publish, mm -hmm. readers who don't pay, pub uh, pay charges to read, but in fact the costs are borne and um, and supported by the research system itself. Mm -hmm. So we have money in the system at this point, we have libraries from institutions that pay a considerable amount of money for uh, subscription packages to big publishers. Mm -hmm. We have institutions that do the same. And um, so what we've been trying to push for is to think about uh, redirecting that money so that actually you can create an open access system with journals that, in fact, are much cheaper to produce. Than, you know, it's, they're still expensive in terms of distribution. There's lots of things you need to do around the journal. But you could create a system where, in fact, you can have open access journals that you don't pay to publish in, that are still open to the readership, and are supported, say, by, for instance, um, networks of prominent institutions, or by academic societies, or by any combination of those, or by funders. Right? So, and the idea is to, the push for people who are implementing Plan S is to try and be as creative as possible 
about uh, really thinking through the scientific system as a whole mm. and seeing what could be the models for redirecting money in a way that would make this possible. And of course, there are a lot of models around us which mm. are starting to manage to do just that. Mm. So the Open Library of Humanities is a very interesting example of that. There's several other uh, organizations that are starting to provide models to publish in this way and to give advice to people for how to organize uh, their societies and their institutions in this way. Mm -hmm. I think one major obstacle, and that goes to your first question, which is, you know, why don't we just do this right away? Is that actually that difficult? Is that, um, in fact, to be able to jumpstart this shift towards having an uh, open access only journals, which are sort of, you know, diamond or platinum open access so, um, for everybody, is in fact um, requires quite a lot of resources, financial resources and time resources, and it requires a certain institutional space that we now don't have. So I'll give you a very pragmatic example. Mm -hmm. I'm the editor-in-chief of one of the major journals in my field called History and Philosophy of the Life Sciences, and this journal is a Springer journal. Now, if we wanted to move to an open access um, version of the journal, First of all, we'll be faced with the fact that we would have to, in fact, abandon our journals and its archives and its modalities of search because all of these are now kind of, you know, basically kept by the publisher and, you know, the other organization which has rights on the journals. So that already presents several issues in terms of having to make sure that your research community and your community of authors is behind you to an extent that actually they will support you literally having to change the name of the journal and move in a different direction. So, you know, there's these kinds of complexities, it's not straightforward, and there's complexities around having enough of colleagues, both senior and junior, who support this move. There is the fact that once you're doing that jump, you lose all the very good services and important services that publishers actually provide which have to do with the distribution of the journal, the indexing of the journal, so that people can actually find it, which all of which are highly technical, very demanding jobs, which of course publishers specialize in. Furthermore, um, many of the journals that actually have flipped so far, flipping means, you know, actually flipped into this open yeah. access model, have done so because they've managed to attract considerable funding to support the transition phase towards okay. open access. So the famous example of Glossa, which is um, the, the journal that was created as an open access journal with people migrating out of Lingua, which was the original journal in linguistics, very prominent, and that was not open access, is a very important one. But in fact, they had very considerable governmental funding to support that shift, at least in its first few years. They had a very strong support by the community. And these things make a very big difference because the other thing, of course, that publishers do, and I personally don't quite know what to do with, is they provide infrastructures yeah. for publishing. Now, of course, there's lots of people within research also that say, we don't understand why do we need these infrastructures, we don't understand what we need is complicated and fancy copy editing, we don't care about that, we should just be using something like a green archiving option or a repository, Look at what's happening in ARCHIP, for instance, in the mm. physics community. Why don't we just do that? Well, the response to this is, I love repositories. I'm in the board of the main open access repository for my own field, the FieldSide Archive. You know, I use them all the time. But I also see the difference between archiving a manuscript in a green form, kind of pre-copy editing state, 
in publishing something which actually is ready for use, is probably edited in a particular way, is distributed in a particular way, and doing it from an internet platform which is connected to the very complex ecosystem or infrastructures that we have now in research, which of course doesn't just involve other journals and all the different search engines, but it involves things like open data repositories, and methods repositories, and reporting and protocol repositories. So this is, I think, the infrastructures that we're looking at now in research are becoming more complex, partly as a result of the open science movement, because we want to make as many different components of research as open as possible. And that, in fact, creates a publishing situation which is ever more complex mm-hmm. and needs specialized skills. One uh, conference I've been to, and I'm trying to remember hard like which one it was, but basically there was a whole bunch of librarians sitting there. And there were really, I mean, really highly engaged people in open science and, I mean, the librarians, they're really skilled in indexing and all this, what you just mentioned. Um, and they were like, we actually don't understand why we need journals. This should be back in the university's library's hands. I mean, where the libraries would work together to actually uh, do all this archiving, indexing, cross-linking, cross-referencing, all this, which you just mentioned. Uh, and the libraries are already publicly funded, so basically the skills are there, the infrastructures are there, largely, and it just would require like a, well, a little shift of... Uh, well, take it to library instead of um, having this as a like designated journal space uh, still on the internet in a way. So I think it's true that libraries are centrally positioned here. They absolutely should drive what is going on, partly because libraries know what the requirements are for researchers by and large, and have a very long history of being able to deal with very different disciplines. But at the same time, I think that, you know, if it is the case that libraries would take over, then a lot of investment would need to happen on libraries within each institution mm. to make sure that there is more personnel coming in with new skills and mm. expertise in new technologies that are actually you know, supplying the tools that are now used in publishing. Mm. Otherwise, the, you know, to be honest for me, more realistic is the idea that libraries and publishers would partner mm. in a way that's just much more cooperative that has been happening so far and also much more egalitarian. I mean, right now, in the publishing system, it's still the case that publishers hold all the power. There's mm-hmm. no transparency yeah. over uh, subscription charges, over package deals. All of these things are happening in a situation which is very unaccountable. Mm-hmm. And I think, again, that's part of the very good push of Plan S to try and make sure that that doesn't happen, that there's much more transparency around this business model, which also would mean that there will be much more straightforward cooperation and openness between mm-hmm. libraries and publishers. So that's, I mean, that I think would be potentially the ideal situation. Mm-hmm. I wonder, um, just going back to your research uh, field, the research background, well, can we learn from the history? Is there any precedence of um, a plan from above, top-down plan, like, like the Plan S, being implemented in a certain way, the, the, the more softer, well-funded way, like the, the well-provisioned-for way? or the more like the cold water, um, just cliff edge. Cliff edge, yeah, cliff edge away. Um, yeah, other so, examples, and what can we learn from those? I think I mean, you can always learn from history, and, and one of the things that always annoyed me in many of the open science discussions that have been happening over the last 10 years is the fact that every now and then you would have a policy document that says things like, researchers are so close that they're horrible and they want to talk to each other and they only publish in closed journals. 
But in fact, we need to bring in, you know, very often politicians say that. We have this idea that science should be open and we are trying to teach them that this should be the case. Now, I mean, this is utterly ridiculous from a historical point of view. Openness and open science is something that has belonged to the research communities basically since as long as we recognize research as such. It's been part of the professionalization of many, many different disciplines within science. I think we are in a rather novel situation in terms of trying to um, push the system to more corners. I mean, certainly one thing that we do learn from history is that, um, you know, even just in the post-Cold War era and even during the Cold War era, um, top-down pushes towards research infrastructure have, to some extent, sometimes been successful. They're never, what actually they generate is utterly unpredictable. In fact, there is a reason why researchers tend to be subdivided into little communities that do things differently. And that's because, depending on the question you ask, depending on the specific objects of your research, depending on the history of your field, and depending on who's funding you, you will actually operate differently as a researcher. And, you know, in fact, many of us in philosophy regard this um, pluralism, we'll call it, as a huge um, advantage of research, the fact that there's never just one point of view being imposed. Mm -hmm. But the beauty of research is that you have a constant mingling and mm -hmm. comparison and dialogue between different perspectives on the same phenomena. And that is in fact what makes research stronger and what makes it self-correcting in the way that we are indicating mm -hmm. before. So the problem with many top-down initiatives so far is exactly been the fact that they haven't quite taken the importance of the diversity of research seriously enough. And so part, in fact, of the push for Plan S and for other initiatives in the open science space by the Commission from the Global Young Academy is to be very careful to respect that diversity. And in fact, I mean, we have um, a couple of position statements released on open science and open data. And the first item of all of these statements is one size does not fit all. Mm -hmm. So you have to create a system which really will be able to embrace that diversity and, and highlight it rather than trying to hide it away and get everybody to behave in exactly the same way. I mean, that's just, there's never been the way research has ever worked properly. And I think what you can learn from history is the fact that that probably will never be the case. Tina was saying the most negative outcome is if there was mandatory gold open access. Yeah, although she was talking about, I mean, Sabina was also saying it's basically what she was concerned with, that basically all the journals just flip and just become golden, yes. sort of just pay to charge more. Yeah, I think Plan S wants to get rid of hybrids, not gold. So the reason that they're saying no hybrids is because then you've got this double dipping that I was saying about. Yeah. So you've got authors paying an APC, an article processing charge, and the journal receives money for that to get make it open access and then the journal receives money again for non-open access by charging a subscription to uh, libraries so that's what plan s is trying to get rid of this this monopoly this double dipping by journals so they basically get burst of both worlds and it's also trying to implement that there is no that there are no subscriptions that everything is open access yes this is by the way zoe zoe ingram she's <laughs> our guest discussion partner yes. on the show. We couldn't solve it without her, so... Yeah. Sabina had, had a problem not just with them getting rid of the hybrids, though, 
she felt that by making mandatory gold open access, it would disproportionately um, make humanities and low-income university researchers uh, put them at a disadvantage. But that would just only... I don't know. I'm kind of struggling with this concept because mm. maybe it's because I had lacked the experience in humanities. But what I know from life sciences, it is extremely expensive to publish in journals. Right. Whatever. Golden, hybrids, whatever. I mean... <laughs> Diamond. Color, yes. Yeah. Um, so, I don't know. I, I, I kind of expect that it stays the same. It's still going to be expensive, but open access, right? Yeah. And anyways, you don't pay from your own pocket. It's no, well, that's the key money. thing, right? So do you pay for... Where does the money come from? Does it come from your research funding, which you would need anyway, or from a library fund? And I think um, Sabina was concerned because some humanities basically aren't even aligned to an institution. They're basically independent mm -hmm. or they're in, they don't get hardly any funding. They don't get these big research grants. They just basically, it's a guy and some books. Um, but I would kind of assume or would hope that Plan S would build in some kind of waiver system for people who are in that position. I mean, they do say in their guidance that... Um, one of the principles is that the journal platform must provide automatic APC waivers for authors from low-income countries and discounts for authors from middle-income countries. So one would assume that there might be some kind of disciplinary version of that? And anyways, I mean, if a library does not have to spend all this money on subscriptions, uh, maybe the library can spend all this money on the researchers publishing instead. Right? Would that be... Yeah. Idea, maybe. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, that would be that. That would be, I think, what Plan S would want to happen. Now, whether that is what happens, is it totally clear with Plan S that it's definitely the way that it's going to happen, or is it also a question of like the goal is for everything to become open access, and maybe once it's implemented, these little things will get worked out, and mm. seeing that we need to have new structures created for them. Yeah. I mean, this is also something we discussed with Sabina, this uh, yeah. approach of like now just like revolution kind of like, oh gosh, I'm talking about revolution all the time. Um, <laughs> yeah, you were talking about that with Van Paywall in the last episode. Um, yeah, okay, well. <laughs> well. Maybe open science has something to do with revolution. Yes. Yeah, well, yeah. The, quiet, the quiet revolution. <laughs> the quiet revolution. Okay. No, I mean, we were talking about this with Sabina, right? So um, maybe, yeah, maybe it's good to just jump in the deep water and learn mm -hmm. to swim. Yeah, exactly. Figure out with some swimming aid. Yeah. I mean, definitely the idea anyway to make all scientific findings open access. I mean, it's the way to go right now, right? I think it's the next logical step in a way. One of the points that she was making, which I really agreed with strongly, is that far too much of the responsibility is put on researchers. Mm. And not enough is put on institutions and platforms such as journals. Um who are basically the ones that hold the power. I think in that sense, Plan S is going the right way. I, I can see her concerns, though, that, that they intend to do that, and what actually happens is that it's pushed again back onto the researchers. Well, I mean, isn't it also a question of how much the system is willing to change? Like, if it is pretty radical to say knowledge is now something that is open, accessible to everybody. So it's the question if, you know, we stay in the same paradigm of how knowledge is closed and only a privilege, then it's obvious that, that her concerns are completely justified. Yes. But yes. 
if we're willing to change the structures behind it, then... Then those concerns don't become so important. Right. Exactly. So it's really, it's like we're at a turning point. Where do we go? Do we change the structures Mm. that we have or do we continue, you know, finding new ways to have it accessible, but at the same time not being really inclusive and fair? Yeah. yeah, instead of like staying the system, just trying to find new ways to hack it. Yeah, in a way. Yeah, I improve it a little bit, but yeah. Yeah, I mean, obviously, in the show notes, we'll link to the uh, Coalition S document, which kind of outlines everything very clearly, and also the Global Young Academy document, which um, critiques them. Which Planets. critiques it. Yeah. So I mean, if you if you're kind of still trying to get uh, your head around this, ask us if you've got any questions, and we'll um, try and answer them. So. Tweet us or email us. Yes, and tweet us at OOSP <laughs> underscore Orion Pod. Or uh, email us at Orion at MDC uh, Berlin.de. This concludes our episode on Plan S. The music for the show was uh, produced by Fabio de Miguel. The sound editing is done by Paul Oliveira. And our guest discussion partner was Zoe Ingram. This podcast is brought to you by the Orion Open Science Project, funded by the European Union and produced at the MDC, Max Debuch Center for Molecular Medicine in Berlin, Germany. See you next time. Yeah, hope you enjoyed. See you next time. Bye. Bye.